Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hey guys, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Lou. I'm joined this week by Ryan. Hi. And Noah. Hi, y'all. This week we're talking about this month in labor history, which is a cool subject and labor relations have gone on for a long time. And it is really important to talk about it. Why, you ask? That's a great question. It's a very good question. I, I think one of the things we like to do on the show is to talk about these things because there aren't a lot of other places talking about them. This is stuff that might get a line or two in your history textbook, but otherwise has been sort of forgotten. But in many ways, these are the battles, and, and we do mean literal battles, that shape this country. That's absolutely true. And like you said, nobody talks about it. Um, we were talking a few weeks back about our episode on, on weekends and how we could increase the number of holidays they have. And one of the ideas that we had was the Cesar Chavez Day. And most people have no idea who that is. Yeah. No clue. They, they would think he's probably a Roman general or something. And, and most of the people who know who he is are people who are like the human bowling jacket in charge of Maine trying to remove his picture from murals or otherwise, you know, just I'm sorry, excising his human image. bowling jacket? It's a name he was given by a particular writer. It's fairly accurate. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, to be clear, Cesar Chavez was a uh, organizer of farm laborers out in California in, I think, the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. he, uh, and 80s and 90s. I mean, he died shortly after or during a hunger strike. And the fact that I'm confused about that should tell you how little we know if you, right. if you don't specifically seek out knowledge about him. Yeah. And to your point about the weekend, uh, our, our episode on that, the Fair Labor Standards Act that made the weekend you know, a federal thing was passed in October. It's something that... Ooh, um, so there's thematic. some nice synergy. Nice. Um, we're going to go th roughly through chronological order today, starting, um, I think, with some of the earliest stuff we've discussed on the show, which is uh, Bacon's Rebellion, which happened before the United States was a country when we were still the colonies of England. And it's one of the earliest instances of like what can be called class warfare in this country, warfare being, again, very literal. Yeah, as uh, Lou mentioned, labor relations have gone on for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> one might say as long as people have been working for each other. And in the pre-United States, United States... The colonies. Uh, the colonies, yes. Well, you know, that's a loaded term for me. But anyway, <laughs> during the colonial era of the United States, what you had in the colony of Virginia in particular was an economy based on debt. Everybody owed somebody money. And even if you were in the planter class, it was not uncommon that until harvest time came in, you would be massively in hock to somebody else. So what eventually develops out of this is a society in which you have the planter class, which is making some money and has property. And then you've got their workers who are some mix of indentured servants and slaves. 
indentured servants had a certain kind of uh, contract relationship with their bosses, their, the planters. But the main thing is that they were white. They were coming from England or other mm. European countries. And oftentimes their servitude was to pay off the cost of traveling across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And that after the, that servitude was over, they were free. It was uncommon for it to be a lifetime thing. Right. So you've got this very defined class structure, and you obviously, whenever you have that, that kind of thing, you're going to start to see some solidarity develop in the lower classes when you don't do anything to stamp it out. Mm -hmm. And the person who enters into the picture here is Nathaniel Bacon. He is a planter, and he is trying to take land away from the Native Americans. This is our hero, folks. Um, <laughs> He's trying to take away land from the Native Americans so he can have more property, and so his property and others are not getting raided by said Native Americans. And well, the rest. We never of, said uh, all labor movements weren't somewhat problematic. What we're saying part. here is Nathaniel Bacon is a land of contrasts. <laughs> so he says he wants to do this, and apparently the rest of the Virginia planters go, no, we will not lend you troops and equipment for this. This is a bad idea. So his reply this is... This, again, to specifically say is to take land away from Native yes. peoples so that he can make more money. And the Virginian planters, interestingly, said, nah, No. That's weird. This We're good. Too bad an idea for Virginia planters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 1600. This is, this is a complicated again, story. Again, our protagonist, folks. So, <laughs> uh, except he shouldn't be, because what ended up happening is that because hell hath no fury like a rich person scorned, Nathaniel Bacon was so mad about this being told no that he basically united um, minor members of the planter class, indentured servants, and slaves into a fighting force that required armed intervention to stamp out. And... The rebellion itself is given, you get scant coverage of it if you get any at all. My American history textbook didn't mention it. It, it just didn't get brought it's up. This sort of thing that might be like one multiple choice, right. multiple choice question on, you know, on like your, the AP or something. Yeah, yeah, and that's the extent to which you'll learn about it. You won't learn about necessarily the causes or right. the effects. Right, and you or or it might just bring up the irony of the Virginian planters being like, no, let's not take land away from other people. That's not that's not good. Contrary to any other point in history, point in American history, at all. To this day. I, I think American history studies in general kind of lack a sense of irony, and maybe that's <laughs> why it doesn't get mentioned as much. Fair enough. No, the, the thing is, too, that the effects are the important part, because after Bacon's Rebellion, I came into contact with this argument through Howard Zinn. I'm sure other people have come into contact with it through him or other historians, but the argument is that it was after Bacon's Rebellion that Virginia and other colonies began to realize you cannot allow indentured servants, who again are white, mm -hmm. and slaves who are black, to develop solidarity amongst themselves. And mm -hmm. so what they decide to do is they make indentured servitude an easier thing. Right. They shorten the terms that are required. They uh, make it more attractive for people to undertake. They give those people rights based on the fact that they are white, mm -hmm. most yeah. importantly, and create a race-based society. Mm -hmm. And in, in many cases, like, harshening what slavery was for those left out of that society. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's definitely a tactic that that's repeated again. Um, if you look at like the Jim Crow South, yep. that was the specific reason why is because they said, well, we really don't want to make all poor people's lives marginally better. But since there are more of them than there are of us, mm -hmm. what we can do is we can just create a false uh, division between the same class based on some artificial thing. The, For example, race. Yeah, this is something we had talked about um, about a month or so back. Uh, Rich to spoke about the uh, populace in the South. They had success there, you know, across racial lines, but ultimately lost out to the establishment of, you know, Jim Crow society, which kept white workers and black workers separate and mm -hmm. at the expense of all of them. Yeah, that's something it's it's not studied enough or it's not mentioned enough in our history that the divisions to me, a lot of divisions are artificial beyond yeah. class. Class mm -hmm. is the ultimate division to me. And I do have a lot of privilege, but it is definitely a, a division that there could be more uniting around. The thing is, there is a difference between a division being artificial mm -hmm. and a division being false. This it, it is a constructed division. Yeah. What happened after Bacon's Rebellion, right. whether it happened after Bacon's mm -hmm. Rebellion or not, right. but it's not a false division in that it exists. That's it true. Is now I'll give there. you that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's absolutely true. And it and but it is it shouldn't manipulated. Be minimized right. Right. Yeah. That's ex and, that's true. And and we can manipulate. And especially on the left, like we have to make sure that we're very clear about the fact that this is true. It does exist, and you have to it deal has with real it. impact. Yeah, it yes. does. And this is absolutely true. But the way that these these divisions can be enhanced is by playing one set of people against mm -hmm. the other. And if you take everybody who has similar backgrounds but might have one difference amongst them, you can very easily set those two populations against each other to the benefit of a third person entirely. And the article I was reading about Bacon's Rebellion is um, it, the author made up the argument that, like, a hundred years later, the idea that, uh, you know, white and black workers might have come together under a common cause in Virginia would have been ludicrous. But it happened in Virginia, you know, in Bacon's Rebellion. It's something that... You, you, you mean to tell me that the way that we are taught history <laughs> might be carefully constructed to make it seem as though certain constructed divisions are immutable and that they cannot and, in any way be bridged. And, and that they've always been there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Know, it, yeah. This is something that's really new, even in the time of the American colonies. Mm. Go figure. Yeah, so it's. I don't feel from this Bacon's Rebellion story that there's really any winners. It, no, it, like, it no. gets violently crushed. Yeah, it? It yeah. Gets, well, it gets violently crushed. The person who leads it is has motivations for profit. Yeah, that's that's his motivation for this is to to see how much more money and land he can plunder mm -hmm. from other people. So so at its root, it's a capitalist, pre-capitalist nightmare. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. it, it's not exactly a great shining moment on the hill. No, it, it isn't. It's a, it's a very uh, Song of Ice and Fire <laughs> thing. No, nobody's coming out of this looking good. Right. It, but it does, as, as you guys pointed out, it does illustrate the fact that labor solidarity has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also on this theme and also happening in October, you, you see a couple centuries later is John Brown raids Harper's Ferry. You know, he 
tries to steal an arsenal full of weapons and lead a slave rebellion. And it's West Virginia, I believe, but it's roughly the same part of the country. Harper's Ferry? Yeah. I think it's regular Virginia. Well, okay. Original flavor Virginia. (laughs) Before the Civil War, all would have been Virginia. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, No, that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it like that. The point is, October is a lot more dope than I thought it was. Dope-tober? Dope-tober. There aren't any of maybe the obvious stories in this month of labor history and, you know, kind of had to dig for what to talk about here. But there's sort of a through line in all of this in that there's there's going to be violence in the stories mm-hmm. we're talking about today. And a lot of that violence gets kind of covered up. You know, it's not a war. It's not any of our, you know, expansions that are talked about, but it is real in this country violence that occurred and doesn't get talked about. That, I think that's the important bit, that it doesn't get talked about. When I was a kid, my mom sent away for these, uh, I think they were through Time Magazine or something, but these cards that were about events, ideas, places, people in American history, and they covered some of this labor history stuff uh, including Cesar Chavez, for example, in a way that I never saw again until I sought out the leftier of American history. You know, this didn't get covered. I had to take courses in American history for my degree. That didn't get covered. I have seen the textbooks that students at the school I work at use. And really, a lot of this doesn't get covered there either. It's almost as if violence against working people is an acceptable silence. You're allowed to not talk about it because, as we said on a couple weeks, well, when this airs, it will be a couple weeks ago, as we said on our second Puerto Rico episode, capitalism is not a natural state, Mm -hmm. and increasingly you have to use state-mandated violence to enforce it. Right, and and you see that at Harper's Ferry, you see that in Bacon's Rebellion, is the state comes down hard on these attempts to bridge the divide, so to speak, uh, yeah. in the working class. And Marx, sorry to be yeah. that person, but Marx talks about that explicitly in Capital and how the state, like capitalism requires state violence, mm-hmm. state-sponsored violence in order to function because the accumulation of wealth originally starts with violence and, and plundering and theft. And then eventually you just earn enough power that it becomes just state-sanctioned violence. Right. And, it, I mean, all that wealth requires force to maintain and uphold it. It's what prevents people from, you know, squatting in some rich person's mm-hmm. third home right. when they aren't <laughs> using it during the summer because it's not warm enough. After this break, we'll be back with more um, fun, violent stories to talk <laughs> about. Yeah. Yay! You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm here this week with Lou. What's up, guys? And Ryan. Hi. And we've been talking about the month of October in labor history. We've been talking about the things that, like every other episode I'm on, we don't talk about, which is especially the, the, the violence that is visited on working people who organize together for a better future. We should have made this into a horror story. 
Yeah, October would have would have been yeah. very thematic. Thematic. Like we can that. put some spooky music Ooh. under all of this in post production. People, one um, again. Yeah. Ah. So the next item on our list is actually the least violent of what we're going to talk about today, and that Aww. only eight people died. It's the anthracite coal strike of 1902, and though it's more recent than Bacon's Rebellion or uh, Harper's Ferry, this is even more sort of uh, underground in American history. Ah, uh, get it? Yeah. Because yeah. it's a Th- mine. Thank you for recognizing. Yeah. yeah. Now, but also hipsters, like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the hipster mind strike. That's hipster what we're doing. Monster. Now, this is actually the second big mine strike in coal country Pennsylvania in over the course of uh, two years. The first is in 1900, and it's very successful, but it doesn't last that long. They had timed it either purposefully or uh, just pure coincidence later in the year, and it was an election year, 1900. And Republicans, including a senator who was a literal mine owner, were very worried that if this strike drags on, it will cost them at the polls. And so they put pressure on the mine owners involved to basically cave on all the demands of the workers at the time. And as a result, the miners are very successful, but they do not get recognition for their union. Now, William McKinley would win the election, the Republican candidate. He beat William Jennings Bryan in 1900. And then a year later, McKinley gets shot by an anarchist in Buffalo. And Teddy Roosevelt takes over as the president. And that would become relevant because two years after the first strike, the miners are back. And this time they want union recognition. They, they want an end to the 10-hour days that they're working. They want a 20% pay increase, among other things. And this time they start their strike in May, and it will go on to October, which is why we're talking about it today. And it became a matter of national importance because as it approached winter, politicians, particularly President Teddy Roosevelt, were very concerned that the threat of a coal shortage in winter would create riots and unrest throughout the country. And so Roosevelt sort of invents the power for the president to intervene in strikes. Typically, in the past, the federal government had merely broken strikes through violence, but this time he decides to take a conciliatory tone and try to mediate the two sides in a way that hadn't been done before but is now fairly commonplace with the National Labor Relations Board. And so Roosevelt is able to bring the two sides at least to a bargaining, well, not even to a bargaining table. The owner still refused to acknowledge the union's uh, legitimacy in negotiating for the miners. And so Roosevelt creates a commission that sort of serves as a liaison between the two parties because the uh, animosity is that strong. Now, now, children. Yeah, it's instead of sending in the army, which admittedly more people die when you do that, what they chose to do was put in a bunch of people to be the quote-unquote adults in the room and essentially treat these two sides as just children squabbling amongst themselves whose demands are equally just. Yeah, it's very paternalistic. I mean, Mm -hmm. even for the first time towards the mine owners themselves, it's the first time the government really takes this tone towards capital and says, 
you have responsibilities here too, you know? And so Clarence Darrow would end up representing the mine workers in this case. If you recognize that name, he was um, the defense attorney in the Scopes Monkey Trial, among other famous occasions. He represented Leopold and Loeb, the uh, killers. And for the mines, they were, you know, representing themselves, basically. And the uh, mine owner had this to say about his workers' conditions. He said, these men don't suffer. Why, half of them don't even speak English. What does that have to do with them suffering or not? Like, apparently, suffering is only legitimate if it's expressed in the in Shakespeare's tongue. I think it's reflective of the broader sort of Mm -hmm. anti-immigrant attitudes of the time. Yeah. Oh well, and and sadly, sentiment. Sadly, yeah, it really Mm -hmm. is because the the assumption is that. Well, if they don't speak English, then they must be from some other country. And if they're from from some other country, then they must have suffered so badly that here, anything we could do to them is paradise in comparison. Number one, that's a good point. Number two, this is also the era where you had people publishing lists of what certain ethnicities were supposed to be good at. (laughs) That's a thing. And they would be posted in like schools and so on. So if you were a kid of, let's say, Latvian extraction, you were supposed to be particularly good at these tasks and not at these. And this was public policy that you as a child and as an adult would have to just accept as part of the national fabric around you. To some what? extent, that's still done. Well, yes. Just not officially. We, we, don't, we no longer put it, you know, as a chart yeah, and a exactly. table kind of thing. Yeah, But to be one, one little note is that the senator you mentioned who was a mine owner himself, Mark Hanna, yep. was not just any senator. He was also the chair of the Republican National Committee at mm-hmm. the time. So the man was directly responsible for any electoral losses that happened to his party, which maybe gave him a little bit more of a direct interest in ensuring that their continued success, basically. Another note is that uh, when Clarence Tarot would be in the Scopes Monkey Trial, his opponent would be William Jennings Bryan, the man McKinley just beat two years early. There's a (laughs) lot of coincidences like this that we're going to come across today. There's only ever five white people that get mentioned in history ever. Basically. And sort of to Darrow's point, in comparison to what the mine owners had to say about their workers, this is uh, Darrow's closing arguments when the case was being arbitrated. He said, we are working for democracy, for humanity, for the future, for the day will come too late for us to see it or know it or receive its benefits, but which will come and will remember our struggles, our triumphs, our defeats, and the words which we spake, which is incredibly eloquent for the guy representing the group of people who apparently don't speak English. (laughs) No, and and you're exactly right that the way the commission worked was to literally split it down the middle. Mm -hmm. They wanted a 20% increase, they got 10%. They wanted an eight-hour day instead of a 10-hour day, they got a nine-hour day. They uh, wanted union recognition, they didn't get that, but there was an arbitration board. So everything was very... The union very much took the fact that they got this meeting, they got this arbitration as evidence of their own legitimacy and what happens after this is even though they only get half of what they want they see a huge uptick in membership because for the first time people are seeing that hey unionizing will get the goods it will bring you benefits that you don't currently have as a worker and and sadly i think though it and, and i'm sure because all of us history is is about centrism and finding the middle ground because the two extremes can never be correct it it just reinforces the 
the idea that well, both sides are equally right or wrong, and there's just some point in the system. And that was very much Roosevelt's approach to it, was mm-hmm. to take the middle ground, of what, which, to be clear, was a step up from all true. his predecessors, but was not what we might call just. That's true. It, it's one of those things where you come into a situation as it stands and decide, well, this is where site A is, and this is where site B is, the truth must be in the middle, which is a very philosophical way to approach it because it also strips it of all context Mm -hmm. and of all power relationships. Because I think something else that's kind of important is that the reason this strike absolutely had to be resolved, right, is because otherwise riots and unrest and Mm -hmm. other things would be coming when Americans didn't get the heat and the fuel Mm -hmm. that they were due, really, Mm -hmm. ultimately, that that they needed to heat their homes. So it, it also shows that when you can effectively threaten the things that capital relies on to maintain control mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. the mass of people, and you can do so in a way that, that violence will not resolve, then you win. And when you can do so in spite of the fact that your f- workforce might be 60% Irish and 40% German and have these sort of old school ethnic tensions that aren't really a factor in the U.S. today among, you know, European immigrants, there's evidence that, hey, you know, you're not going to divide us on these lines anymore, which yeah. you know, is, is a step up. definitely. And, and, you know, it literally just occurred to me as soon as you said that, that those charts that I was mentioning... Mm-hmm. They're in in and of themselves a form of creating that artificial division, yeah. because if they're saying you're good at holding a wheelbarrow and you're good at moving heavy things and you're good at lifting the heavy things and you're good at this other unrelated task, it creates this idea that it effectively divides you into immutable quote unquote peoples, which again, once you start talking about your working experiences, turned out to not be the case. Your experiences are very similar, whether you're, you know, a Swedish immigrant or an Italian. Tiny tangent. (laughs) Uh, When I I read this book, it was by the same guy who wrote The Martian. I think something weird. Andy Weir. Andy Weir, yeah. Uh, He wrote this book, Artemis. The idea, the premise was it was the first moon base, Mm -hmm. like, populated, full-time, everything like that. And one of the things I found really fascinating about it was his portrayal of neoliberalism. He wasn't intending to show how corporations and how governments can collaborate and create (laughs) class structures and Mm -hmm. and how those class structures are perpetuated. But that's definitely what I got out of that book. And one of the interesting things he shows is, well, all the people who work in the life support system, they're all Vietnamese, and all the people who work in the metallurgy system they're all Saudi Arabian like mm-hmm. all of these things and that's kind of what happens and that's what Noah was talking about with the creating these structures and and they're they're attributing in those posters they're attributing that division where well if you're Irish you're going to tend to go into these industries and and if you're German you're going to go into these based on physical attributes or mental or, or something innate, when it's it's much more likely to be like, well, I just know a whole bunch of people in this industry already, so I'm going to go do that. Which, in that book, Artemis, is, is something that's a little more clear-cut, and that it's the same thing. And to an extent, we still have that today, not just, you know, in this country, we still have those stereotypes about certain groups, you know, 
going towards certain professions, but also like on a worldwide scale. I mean, we reserve sort of shoe manufacturing to, you know, the countries of Southeast Asia now. It is Mm -hmm. something that those countries are sort of trapped in doing by, you know, the global market system that relies on cheap labor to keep those of us here in the U.S. shoed and clothed and fed. Yeah. No, that's absolutely fair. After a while, it becomes... And anybody who's gotten a comment about how good are you at landscaping after speaking Spanish, as I have, um, (laughs) knows what that's like. But it's it's obviously so much more cruel when it is an entire system of economic exploitation. And the, the difference here is that when... It's something that somebody does. I know a bunch of people who already work in this, be it railroads or mines or what have you. We treat that, as you're saying, Lou, as a way to divide these people and say, well, that's because they're this ethnicity, so that's what they do. That That's what they're good at. But we certainly, I mean, rich people get where they are entirely by networking. <laughs> that's that, That's true. literally their only skill. And we don't ever disprivilege that. When it comes to them, we consider it a good thing and and something that we should encourage people in general to do rather than using it as a way to be reductive about them. I mean, on the other hand, once you're wealthy, there's no uh, loyalty to any nation or or family ties other than people who are also wealthy. That's why there's plenty of international solidarity amongst the wealthy because they have all the power and they understand that that's a a true division. Whereas I don't think that sort of international solidarity you're talking about has really taken hold among the working class, especially given our our national discourse about immigration Mm -hmm. or about Mm -hmm. outsourcing even. Exactly. And it's partly because that conversation is driven by those in power Mm -hmm. and they see it as a very easy way to divide us. Partly and partly because you're going to eventually have to confront the very real thing that workers in the United States are building planes, you know, or putting them together from parts that they get from other places, but they count as the manufacturers. Whereas, as Ryan just pointed out, uh, somebody in Indonesia is making shoes that mm-hmm. might even shoe the American workers building the planes. That's so at true. some point you do, international solidarity is going to require confronting the fact that we've all been forced mm-hmm. into a system where we're all sort of in it together, but in the suffering yeah. and not really in the, and, and in a way that some of us are deriving benefits from the suffering and the cruelty visited upon others among us. To bring it back to this coal strike, <laughs> yeah, which we One heck of a tangent. Know, no, it was a very good tangent, but we did promise violence. <laughs> eight people did die in this strike. There were like skirmishes, <laughs> like gunfights between the people the okay running corral. the mines. And <laughs> this is Pennsylvania. This is, you know, the East. And there were eight reported deaths. But when, you know, the two sides came to the table, so to speak, the mine owners accused the strikers of killing 21 people. And the union leader at the time said, name some names. Who are these people? Prove it, and I will resign. They were all rich people who had died in the middle of that, of like old age, and they were claiming them <laughs> as deaths from the mine owner striking. I, I don't think they even had that. Wow. The union leader did not resign. Oh. To say. Yeah. I um, like that. I yeah. mean, it's awful, but for some reason it's very satisfying. I mean, it's it's the opposite of the Hurricane Maria death count. Sorry to go back to that well. Instead of, you know, saying, no, only 16 people died. It's like, no, you killed 21 people. Who are they? 
they they totally exist. Yeah, they, they're they're uh, from Canada. You yeah, wouldn't know yeah, them. Yeah, you wouldn't know them. To they, the extent <laughs> that there were real casualties here, they were mostly on the side of the workers, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Because there no, was, um, there was a force called the Coal and Iron Police, which <laughs> a couple of their mm, police officers. You know, these are private groups. One of the deaths was a guy just being accidentally shot because one of the officers was messing with his gun. There's going right. to be 72 point air quotes around that accidentally. True, true. Uh, perhaps history hasn't captured I, all of that. I think, I think we should bring back coal and iron police, but have them police coal and iron, like the materials themselves. Like they keep a watch on them and tell them when they're getting out of line. <laughs> I'm really surprised that we haven't gotten other modern police forces naming themselves after that because it sounds so hardcore. Oh, give it another 10 years. We can, we, come on, Noah, we can do that in like two. Eh, Yeah. (laughs) I can't wait to hear about, you know, the computer police. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back after this break with um, more violence. Yes. More violence. Yeah. More police involvement, more violence, more bloodshed. So many good things. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work? That dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hey guys, welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Lou. We're doing this thing this week with Ryan. Hi. <laughs> and Noah. Hi, y'all. I thought that sounded weird. Thing. Doing, doing this, this thing. thing. We're doing well, it we're live. Doing it. <laughs> Except we're not. This is recorded, but whatever. Uh, the point is, this thing that is being done by... Uh, oh, God. <laughs> All right. What are we doing? Do you want to start Ryan? this again? No. We're going with it. <laughs> All right. I respect that. Um, What we're doing this week is uh, (laughs) we're talking about labor history and specifically things that happened in October. We think that, I mean, these are all sort of separate stories. They're isolated stories in some ways, but they all happen in October, and that's good enough for us. One thing that happened in October in 1910 is the L.A. Times building got blown up. It got blown up. Yeah. That's yeah. a yep. good use of the passive. Um, Mistakes were made. Explosives <laughs> were planted. <laughs> and this was part of a series of b- bombings being carried out by iron workers in the Southwest at the time. Previously, they had bombed, it says on Wikipedia at least, 110 iron works at somehow managing not to cause deaths or even a significant amount of monetary damage. They need to try harder. Well, on the monetary damage. Like, yeah, hold like, up. Uh, let's, let's be <laughs> let's clear. Let's be real clear. <laughs> monetary damage. They could have done more. Like, 110 bombings. That's a lot of bombings. Like, it's, whoa. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's... Mind-boggling. It's the sort of thing we don't, you know, have in this country at the moment. Is no. It's not done here. No, it's... <laughs> It's uh, sort of wild to see it, you know, come up in a Wikipedia page and be like, there was 110 bombings and I never heard about it. That's Mm -hmm. true. The reason they're going after the L.A. Times is because the L.A. Times publisher, Harrison Otis, was vehemently anti-union and also in charge of effectively what was L.A.'s Chamber of Commerce at the time. So not only is he running the L.A. Times and publishing it as an anti-union paper, but he is, you know, 
leading the charge against unions at all levels throughout the city. And this has impacts up and down the West Coast. It's credited with undercutting the cost for workers in San Francisco because L.A., being an anti-union town, work can be had cheaper there. And so the L.A. Times becomes, you know, a target of ire among workers. And there's this sort of uh, atmosphere of tension and a ratcheting up of animosity to the point where the city of Los Angeles banned speaking on public streets in a loud or unusual tone, which... What's an unusual tone? I am in favor of unions. (laughs) What? There there were a lot of these laws at the time that were designed basically to prevent people from talking about unions, but the letter of the law was such that it was just enough to be legal if they banned all political speech on street corners or if they banned speaking in loud or unusual tones. I've been reading a book lately about the IWW member Frank Little, and his big thing was sort of going against these laws and cities <laughs> where they popped up across the West by going on to street corners and reading the Declaration of Independence. And then <laughs> when they arrested him, obviously fomenting, you know, support for his plight, because that's not a good look. <laughs> Do better, <laughs> police. Little's big thing was yeah, doing that? Yeah. yeah. The, the, All right. He, he did it in, like, several cities and, you know, can be credited in some part with our broader understanding of the First Amendment. So if, <laughs> I, so if I can take if I can take a lesson out of this, it's that if you don't want your newspaper blown up, be pro-union. Um, that's not something I would advocate. Okay, cool. <laughs> that's fair enough. All right. Um, okay, let's see what other lessons so, we can learn. So the people responsible for this, and eventually they would admit to the crime, were J.J. and J.B. McNamara, Irish immigrants who were sort of higher up in the iron worker hierarchy. And they had carried out a number of these bombings at, at the iron works like we talked about, and they wanted to send a message to the L.A. Times. What they didn't account for is that being a newspaper that needs to, you know, put out newspapers in the morning, there would be people working overnight. Mm-hmm. And so tragically what happens is in the fire that starts because these bombs were set near, you know, printer ink containers, a couple dozen people die as a result. Jeez. And they become the most wanted men in the West effectively for what they've done. And, and it would be months actually until they were caught for this. It, they use private detectives and eventually mm. suss them out. And the labor movement at the time when the, when the McNamara's were caught rallied to their cause because for various reasons they were highly suspicious of accusations being made against labor leaders just a few years earlier in um, Idaho the ex-governor of Idaho was blown up and in the ensuing legal process they tried to rope in a few members of the IWW on conspiracy charges big bill haywood one of the IWW's founders was charged with <coughs> murder you know but they could not prove that he actually had anything to do with this bombing it was sort of a lone crazy person i guess and the labor leaders at the time they wanted the defense attorney who was able to get Big Bill Haywood acquitted. And that happened to be Clarence Darrow. He pops up again. Back at it again. And Darrow soon realized that this would not be as easy a case for him because, well, the McNamaras actually did plant those bombs. I maintain those are fake names. (laughs) Those are like two on point. Well, I'm I'm going to down on your joke here, (laughs) but it is important to know that Labor leaders had a very good reason for not believing that this was true no, because I agree. there's 
plenty of evidence that rich people will do this. There's yeah. distrust of the police going back to the Haymarket incident and pr- probably even further than that among the labor movement. And specifically when it comes to fire, not to you know get into my area of expertise here, but mm-hmm. the richest man in ancient Rome, Marcus Licinius Crassus, got his start in real estate buying up entire apartment blocks on for I was going to say pennies on the dollar, but that's not quite right. Uh, for <laughs> Pennies on the Cersties? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Cersties <laughs> on the denarius, whatever. <laughs> but paying way below market value for them because the alternative was to let them be destroyed and gutted by fire. So you would buy them up for a fraction of the price and then have his own trained brigades put out the fire and rebuild anything that was lost. But the thing is, in many of those cases, they were also the people who set the fires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... As as the, far back a bit as of, uh, you know an, an extortion racket about all that you know protection yeah. racket. Oh yeah, very obviously. But that's the thing. Since long before the common era, you've got evidence that wealthy people can and will just do this kind of stuff. Yeah, and the accusation from people, including Eugene Debs, was that Otis had planted these bombs himself and to. Yeah put the union movement in a poor light. Yes, this let's yeah, let's buy into this conspiracy theory cuz I I believe it. Let's just say that. Okay. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's kind of strange that this organization that was into iron mm-hmm. whatever you said they were, mm-hmm. iron mines, iron works. Iron works. There we go. Uh, they're not getting the iron out of the ground. They're doing stuff with the iron. Gotcha. Iron stuff. They like they were bombing those and then they pivot to a newspaper. That's weird. Like, even if you're super anti-union, that's, to me, that's weird. Well, you know, you got to start small and then... Yeah. And then go to a newspaper? Well, Not like another They weren't causing industry? a lot of monetary damage, as right. we had discussed, and I guess they wanted to make a, uh, a, a bigger, bigger splash. splash. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff you can blow up, though. Like, you could blow up a railway or can, a... Can we not do this? Yeah. <laughs> For, okay. Not the least, to... because this is supposed to be my bit. Okay. I'm just saying... We're not advocating for blowing stuff up. I'm just saying it doesn't make sense to blow up, right? Like, no, that's a very good point. And then go to a newspaper. And what uh, do you know, Ryan? What ended up happening to the McNamaras? They went to prison. I I think one of them died there, and the other he served like 15 years, and then went back to Illinois, which is where he came from. <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, I'm shocked they weren't yeah, yeah, both they, they you know executed executed by all the firing squads. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I want to look into that more, like on my own time, because that's that's such and, a. And there weird are a case. lot of you know labor leaders at the time who did end up you know being executed. Yeah. Through legal and otherwise means, uh, Frank Little, as I mentioned before, was like dragged behind a truck for miles until Whoa. he died. Oh boy! Tragic story. Well, you promised violence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah we it. got it. No. You've been warned. This was um, how do you say? A bad look for the labor <laughs> movement in Los Angeles. And it wasn't good. And it set them back really for decades in the city. It wouldn't be till the 50s that unions gained significant foothold in the uh, West Coast's largest city. And I wanted to s- sort of tie this into a more modern story, which is that the LA Times, which again historically had been run by this anti union family, now has a union for the first time in its history. It achieved this. I think back in January, and that's good. And correct me if I'm wrong, it did so while under the ownership of Tronk? Tronk. Yes, Tronk. Tronk. 
which um, Trunk. is the hilariously named media conglomerate that owns you know, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Daily News, all of these outlets, and has mostly committed itself to gutting them. Um, as when the LA Times unionized, one of its key concerns was that Tronk leadership had multiple sexual harassment issues within the company that workers wanted addressed. And within months of the union being formed, Tronk sold the paper to, you know, a local billionaire, oh. as, as one does. Yes. So what you're saying is if you want a paper to unionize, you should blow part of it up 100 years in advance? Not what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, cool. They, Fair they enough. They actually moved out of the building in question just last month. Oh, really? really? Yeah, so Only last month. The one month. that got blowed up? This year, yeah. Wow. It, it's sort of a historic building in Los Angeles, I guess, and they recently moved. I mean, nice. to be fair, if part of my house blew up, I'd kind of want to keep it and be like, and this is the room where everything went to hell. Yeah, look at the ash marks on the wall. and yeah. That'd be a cool story. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back with another cool story after <laughs> this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by uh, Louise. Yeah, that's me. Hi. And Noah. Hi, y'all. We've been talking about labor history, and the sort of theme throughout this has been that these are things happening in October. It's it's a loose premise. but It's our version of Oktoberfest. Maybe it's something <laughs> that we'll do every month, but I, I can't say for sure at this moment. <laughs> and the reason we talk about labor history, as I said in the beginning, is because these things aren't covered. And if they aren't talked about elsewhere, people tend to miss the connections that these events have to the present day. And while you might not quite see the uh, resonance of, you know, an LA Times being bombed in 1910 to today, the broader labor struggle has been a defining feature of American life since there was American life. And that's been part of the point we've made today. And to that point, recently, hotel workers in a few major cities have gone on strike. The labor mi- movement continues apace with fewer bombings and gunfights in the streets, but nevertheless, the struggles are very similar. Specifically, uh, they've gone on strike in Boston and San Francisco and Honolulu and planning on strikes in Oakland and what you find as you read this list of cities is that these are some of the most expensive cities in America to live in. And one of the complaints from hotel workers, as you might imagine, is that they can't make enough money to afford to live in the cities in which they work. That's true of a lot of the service industry right now is that because minimum wage hasn't meaningfully increased in the country in since I was first starting working, I don't know, maybe 10 years now, it's hard to make ends meet. And people, especially the wealthiest, they keep taking home more and more of the pie, so to speak, which leads less for the rest of us. And there are more of us and we just keep getting and, smaller and meanwhile, and smaller rents crumbs. keep going up. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's the thing. You need a roof over your head. That That is one of the most basic needs, something to keep the rain out, right? And the fact that that becomes ever more out of reach 
for people who work for other people's gain, for other people's profit, not to be that person, but it's not flashy and it's not explosive, literally, but it is a form of violence. You are taking away people's ability to sustain themselves and to literally have a living while you keep them working for it. It is no less class warfare than any of the other stories we've talked about on this show today. Exactly. And there's sort of a a special irony to the fact that these people are providing effectively room and board to rich people in buildings that could be affordable housing in theory. You know, there's Mm -hmm. cities keep building hotels and luxury condos and the space runs out for housing that can be afforded by the people who maintain those buildings. And meanwhile, what you have is that people who already own a home or an apartment or what have you will buy these and just turn them into Airbnbs or Mm -hmm. rental properties and so on. Here's the thing, right? Hotels make a lot of their marketing, a lot of their programs these days are built around making them seem conscious of what they're providing. Yes. So... Mm -hmm. For example, one thing that gets mentioned in the uh, story you provided us, Ryan, thank you very much, by the way, about the hotel strike in Boston, well, hotel worker strike, the hotels themselves are obviously scabs, Um, (laughs) but they, they have this green choice program. I'm sure if you've been in a hotel, if you've stayed in one recently, you've probably seen these. These are the ones that tell you, you know, you can forego housekeeping for a couple of days and so on. And for you, you're thinking, at least at first when you encounter that, you might say, oh, well, this is very environmentally conscious and what have you. But the thing that you probably don't realize and the thing that especially these hotel chains are counting on you not to realize is that they then use that as a way to minimize work for their housekeepers and take away their benefits and take away their pay. And they're not exactly, you know, housekeepers are not in a situation where they're privileged workers in the first place. Right. They, they have some of the hardest jobs in the country. And now what these companies are, are doing is to you, the consumer, uh, making themselves look good and responsible and to their own workers, using that as an excuse to treat them, to abuse them more than they ever have. Because it's not like you don't get charged less for forgoing your housekeeping. You still pay the same rate. It's a very, it's a very liberal thing. You get yeah. to feel good that you made that choice. Well, what did we start this show today with? We talked about Bacon's Rebellion and, it, and sort of Virginia built on imported labor and you know slaves mm-hmm and indentured servitude. And then we talked about this coal strike, these mostly immigrant workers in the coal fields of Pennsylvania. And what does the coal mining boss say about his workers? You know, half of them don't even speak English. And I found this quote in a story from uh, WBUR, which is like the public radio in Boston. It's from one of the workers on strike in Boston, Rahel Agdunya who has worked as a banquet server at the Sheraton Boston for 14 years. He says, they just count us as dumb, you know, a lot of foreigners, and they don't see us as being strong enough to do this. And I think through this episode, unwittingly, it was admittedly just, you know, these are things that happened in October. We've shown a through line from, you know, the origins of this country to our continued use of cheap, immigrant and you know second generation labor because we need that labor to make the rest of us kind of go semi comfortable no that, that that's absolutely true we we haven't one of the things that's 
ultimately most offensive about American history is that we treat the 13th Amendment as the end of slavery, and we talk about the Jim Crow South as in some way preserving it, but we don't really talk about the fact that it basically still exists. We still import labor, and we still pay them much, much less than than they're worth, ultimately. It, it, no other consideration matters, and we treat them as less than people. And we continue to do so because much like the mine owner who said, you know, these people don't speak English, the rich and powerful among us, and many of the non-rich and non-powerful, think of them as literally being unable to express their suffering, or as Lou put it, being undeserving of expressing their suffering, or like they're they're not allowed to complain. Yeah, and I think, well, no, I think it's a little bit more nefarious than that. I think it's it's not that they're unwilling to complain or anything like that. It's that they are automatically grateful for the opportunity to serve. And in some cases, there's a language barrier that makes it more difficult for them to you know, speak out against the abuses they're facing. And cleaning and housekeeping is an industry especially where it relies a lot on these sort of immigrant worker populations. And and unfortunately, because there is that language barrier, it means that these populations are a whole lot more easy to abuse. And, mm-hmm. and to keep from organizing themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly. It's no coincidence that service workers are among the least unionized in the country. You know, it's right. been an industry that has been very slow to organize yeah. historically. Yeah, and that's that's an important point that I don't think is mentioned enough. It's not that they're unwilling to organize or happy with the status quo. It's that because of their immigrant status and maybe perhaps a language barrier, they can't mm-hmm. organize. Mm-hmm. No, there there are formal barriers put in their way. I mean, this country this country still makes life nigh impossible for immigrants and is doing so more now under this current administration, which I didn't really think was possible, but here we are. And nobody is going to give you, you know, the magical form that recognizes your rights as a worker in your first language. They're not going to have plenty of them in mm-hmm. Spanish or Portuguese or Mandarin or Chinese, sorry, or Haitian Creole or whatever it is that you speak. They're going to demand that you do it in English. Mm-hmm. And they're going to demand that you engage with the entire process in English, a language that, by the way, is still not the official language of the United States. I, I was um, sitting in with Andrew, Jay, and John as they recorded an episode a couple of days ago, and the subject was, you know, the side job, the side hustle. And it strikes me that one of the slogans for Unite Here, the hotel workers' union, throughout this process has been, one job should be enough. And, you know, these are people who often have second jobs because the wages from their nine to five isn't cutting it especially in these cities where the rent is too damn high. (laughs) And especially when their work schedules are kept artificially unstable and unpredictable to make sure, you know, they give them just enough hours to make sure that they keep coming in, but not enough to actually make a living off of it. Mm -hmm. And as somebody, again, if you haven't heard an episode I've been on before, I teach for a living. And the (laughs) amount of teachers who have second jobs in this country is, by percentage, gigantic for a job that already requires... Plenty of mental energy and physical energy. So in, in, if, if anything, these jobs require probably more of both. So it's an incredible... It, it, the amount of cruelty that is visited on these people at every level is so profoundly... Well, it's tragic, 
ultimately, because it really doesn't have to be this way. It never had to be this way, but it has become this way through the actions of capital. And it's very encouraging to see that in spite of all the barriers that have been put in their way, these people are organizing for their rights and for what they're owed. One thing you see a lot when you read about labor history in this country is that in the past, like these things were understood by so much of the population, like crossing the picket line, for example, was a cardinal sin. <laughs> and because these things aren't talked about, you know, this thing we've discussed throughout this episode, that these stories get buried. There's not as much knowledge about that. So you have, for example, a unionized baseball team, the New York Yankees, crossing the picket line in Boston Scabs. at their hotel. There's, there's a, just a basic lack of solidarity and understanding yeah. about labor issues in this country. Well, and, and again, that's the interdependency, right, of labor. So the Yankees are a unionized baseball team. They should be paid what they're worth. They should not exist, but that's an entirely <laughs> different thing. That's an individual thing. I'm sure punching out in general doesn't endorse that. They should, but that's another episode. Anyway, <laughs> but they're a team that is going to depend on, over the course of a season, probably thousands of other workers who are also unionized. But for all they know, they, you know they, they've got their jobs. They've got their things to do. And nobody in that organization is going to be checking like, hey, when we go play, I don't know, when we go play the Rays, yeah. do we? Uh, how do we know that there isn't a strike going on mm-hmm. at the hotel that we're going to be staying at, yeah. or at the uh, you know? If because even now, you know, these strikes they aren't you know national news by any means. They're lightly covered, if at all. Yeah, what we've gone is from muting the history after it happens to muting it even as it's occurring. Mm-hmm. Because if it never enters the popular consciousness, then there's no reason to chronicle it. And so to some extent, you know, it's hard to blame the Yankees for what they've done, but I'm willing to screw them. I think I can make that sacrifice. But if you think about it, you know, I mean, who making a stand would ring louder than a professional baseball team? If they chose to not break that picket line, you know, that would be quite a statement in favor of the hotel workers themselves. Well, the actual answer is a professional football team. But still, they would make a pretty big splash, I would think. Yeah. We're just saying, you know, it, it, it would be nice to see people that, on the other hand, the, the thing you can definitely say is, to whom do Americans look up more yeah. in those terms? You know, if Aaron Judge stood out there and said, you know, we're not crossing this picket line, the Yankees would lose some fans, I would imagine. But there might be... They can afford that. Who cares? This is true. Uh, But there's going to be, I bet you, a few hundred or maybe even a couple thousand people across the United States who might suddenly be like, why is he saying this? Yeah, they they have a bigger light to shine on these issues, you know. And and they have a bigger, and they've got an ability to do that. I think this is, again, to go back to this theme of, of sort of separating labor, I think this is one reason why the point on athletes and and the rhetorical point that gets made against them is that they should just stick to the game and not engage in politics. And I think it's because people are afraid. They've they've turned athletes into our heroes, and now they're basically mad that athletes are realizing that they can use that in a way that's actually, you know, positive for advocacy. I think this has been an interesting discussion. It's taken a lot of Mm -hmm. different directions Mm -hmm. throughout our past 
yeah. hour and change now. I, I want to get home and watch the Red Sox beat the Yankees. So um, <laughs> ALDS um, is ongoing. Yeah. I'm rooting for injuries on that one. I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. And I'm Lou. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.